Collectively, they're known as the two Michaels, and quite frankly, most of the time that people talk about them, they don't mention their last names. I'm speaking, of course, about Michael Spavor, an entrepreneur, Michael Kovrig, peace advocate, both arrested in China about four years ago for allegations of spying. Will we ever really know the, the full story of these two gentlemen? Have we heard it yet? They haven't said a lot since returning from their uh, exile, their imprisonment in China just over here, about a year ago. Um, they appeared recently at Joe Biden's dinner and his address to Parliament. But other than that, we haven't heard much. Two men who've written extensively about this are Mike Blanchfield and Fenn Osler Hampson. And before we get to them, I just want to remind you that you can subscribe to Full Comment Podcast. Hello, I'm Brian Lilly, your host. You can subscribe to it um, anywhere that you listen to podcasts, Stitcher, Apple, Google, Spotify, what have you. Make sure you hit subscribe. Make sure you leave a, a comment, a like, share it on social media, and help get the word out. Now, the story of the two Michaels fascinated me while they were in jail because I can't imagine what it was like for them and the conditions they were living in. I can't imagine how difficult it was for Canadian officials trying to deal with this very international and complex story. And that's what we want to talk to Blanchfield and Fenn Osler Hampson about. Uh, Mike Blanchfield, longtime journalist with the Canadian Press, uh, now with Blue Sky Strategy. Fenn Osler Hampson is uh, a professor at Carleton University, president of the World Refugee and Migration Council. They both join us from Ottawa. Gentlemen, good to speak to you both again. Good afternoon, Brian. I want to ask you, do you, you think that based on what you've written, based on what we've seen in the media over the last several years, will we ever know the full story of, of why they in particular were arrested and what happened to them? Well, I'll weigh in on that a little bit, uh, if I may. I mean, um, we probably will learn more in the coming years because um, I think Michael Kovrig, while he was in prison, and it's talked about in our book as well, was really eager to re-engage with the world and get out and get his freedom, obviously. Uh, he is uh, a pretty pretty accomplished writer uh, as a government employee at Foreign Affairs and then as an analyst for the International Crisis Group, which is the organization he was working with when he was abducted. Um, and I think we're going to probably hear from him at some point on his experience on what really happened because he's really the only one who can tell it. As for uh, Michael Spavor, uh, he went to ground very early on in the um, in the week after his imprisonment, Global Affairs Canada put out a statement from a short one or two line statement on behalf of the family with a photo of, of Mr. Spavor with a dog saying basically um, just wants some private time and wants to re-engage with his life. And frankly, who can blame him? Um, so, I mean, we in our book, Fen and I, I think we, we set the stage on how it happened, why it happened. And we literally stopped writing the moment they got out of prison. Um, and return to Canada. Um, so, uh, but I, I agree that there's probably uh, other chapters to be written, but I think they'll be written by the people who were in the in, in the middle of this, the two Michaels themselves, perhaps one of them, maybe both of them. Uh, Michael, uh, let me stay with you. Um, you and I, when we were both on Parliament Hill, I I can't count how many family members were imprisoned in various countries, and you would constantly have family still in Canada, uh, you know, coming to the media, coming to the government saying, you've got to tell their story. You've got to talk about them. Here's what's going on. We didn't have that with the two Michaels. In fact, it was very difficult to get their family members to speak. How 
much access did you have to family members in in writing the book, either of you? Um, the Spaber family kept a very low profile. It was deliberate. Um, and uh, as I've told other people, if it was my brother in prison like this, I, I probably would do the same thing. I wouldn't be talking to people like you or me either. Um, but uh, Kovrig's um, uh, wife at the time, Vina Najibullah, decided to go public about a year or so after he was in prison. She went on the CBC. Uh, she made herself available for interviews. I interviewed her a number of times. Uh, over the course of covering the story and uh, including a lot of that material in the book, she made herself available to the International Crisis Group that did a podcast and interviewed her in depth on her experiences. And uh, so she created a very strong narrative portrait of what uh, Michael Kovrig was enduring. Um, so we learned a bit about that. We know that uh, both men had quite a reading list of, of material, but uh, it, it seems that um, uh, from what we understand, I think Fennel probably agrees. I think the two families kind of turned to Vina as their spokesperson, their champion, to get this, uh, to kind of keep the story alive. And uh, and as it, and as they as their imprisonment grew, it just seemed like it was going to take a lot more to keep this in sort of the public eye. And that was sort of one of the reasons why we decided to write the book in the first place was to remind people in case uh, they just started lingering in prison without a lot of attention. Fen, uh, let me ask you: Was were these two Canadians? I mean, we know the backstory that they were arrested in retaliation for Canada detaining Men Wazoo. But was this just a case of unfortunate circumstances for two Canadians in a, a very complex geopolitical game of war? Brian, uh, I would say that uh, both Spavor and Kovrig were clearly in the line sights of uh, Chinese uh, intelligence and security officials. Uh, Spavor, uh, because of the work he had uh, done uh, previously uh, and continued to do in uh, North Korea, uh, based uh, uh, from his base in China. And uh, Michael Kovrig, uh, being a former diplomat, working for a very high profile um, human rights uh, organization, the International Crisis Group. He was there on secondment. And so um, their activities, and, and um, I think it's fair to say, you know, Michael Kovrig is high visibility. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they were being watched. The really interesting question, Brian, is why did the Chinese go after two Canadians when um, they could have easily arrested uh, American uh, businessmen or business persons in, in China. There are lots of Americans in China uh, because the, uh, the, uh, the warrant uh, uh, for Meng uh, was issued uh, in a New York court uh, by the U.S. Department of Justice. And I think, um, you know, the interesting question there is, you know, why didn't they go after an American? Why did they go after, you know, two, two Canadians? And I think, well, why do that, you think, well, I, I think, uh, I think it's because they were worried if they went after two Americans, um, this would be escalating, uh, the situation. And so, um, they, uh, uh, remember when the, the, the announcement of the arrest came, it came just as, uh, 
the G20 summit uh, was taking place in Buenos Aires. Uh, Trump, uh, Donald Trump had just had a great dinner with uh, the president of uh, China, Xi Jinping. Uh, Trudeau was, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau was also at that dinner. Uh, there was a lot of talk uh, at the dinner table about uh, uh, turning the page on uh, the trade dispute that the United States had with uh, China. And then this arrest takes place and it's done while Xi Jinping is on the world stage. And this was seen as a personal affront to Xi Jinping, given the high profile nature of Meng Wanzhou. Uh, and, um, and so that, um, that uh, turned it into, uh, you know, what we would call a, a, a global embarrassment for the Chinese. Uh, and so the officials around uh, Xi Jinping, uh, you know, their boss uh, was probably pretty upset about this. And uh, they would have said, uh, well, we got to do something about it. Uh, let's go after the Canadians. Um, they, after all, and this is a Chinese term of derision, they use uh, against Canada, we're the lapdogs. And so that's, uh, that's how this happened. And the fact that Kovrig was uh, a former uh, uh, he was actually on secondment, so he was still technically uh, in the employment uh, of uh, uh, the Canadian government as a as a diplomat. Uh, so you know they decided to go after these two guys. Was that uh, was that a mistake on our part that they were allowed to be arrested, or Meng Wanzhou was allowed to be arrested while this? high-profile international dinners going on, and they're talking about improving relations. Well, the, the timing, um, <laughs> you know, the, the timing was, uh, was, uh, was really bad <laughs> from, from, from that standpoint, uh, obviously. Um, I, I think it was a, a confluence of circumstances. I mean, Meng Wanzhou could have been, they were watching her movements uh, where she was traveling. Um, the... Um, the arrest warrant had been delivered in August uh, 2018. So, um, you know, the, uh, uh, the, the actual arrest took place on the 1st of December. Uh, so, you know, for, for those two months, they were seeing where she was going. She was traveling around the world. Um, and, you know, to be honest, I think the American uh, authorities felt uh, more confident that um, the Canadians would actually honor uh, uh, an extradition request as opposed to she'd been in, I think, France. You can correct me, Mike. She'd been in France uh, uh, earlier. Uh, uh, she, she'd been to a whole string of countries in that sort of intervening period. And uh, <clears throat> yeah, as Fen is explaining, she could have been picked up elsewhere. I think um, for the Americans, I think they realized they had an ironclad agreement with Canada. We're a security partner. We're a neighbor and they could count on us to... Uh, honor a treaty, which is what a lot of people argued we should have done, despite the fact it had horrible ramifications for these two people. Right. Other other politi ex-politicians like John Manley, a former foreign minister, has argued uh, we should have botched the job strategically and let her get away. To yeah, avoid let, her go, let her go on to Mexico, which is where she was headed to do. Yeah, uh, and know. just basically, you know, sidestep it, and then this wouldn't have happened uh, right. to Canada. There wouldn't have, we wouldn't have received this blowback. But that became sort of the central issue that be the sort of you know political issue that uh, aside from the the human suffering that, that kind of was played out through all of this is do we break our rules do we bend our rules to 
you know, to avoid a conflict with China. Uh, you know, we interviewed Brian Mulroney in the book and he said, you know, you know what, it's terrible what happened to these guys, but uh, you know, we have to honor our treaties with our best friends, the United States. Otherwise, what good is our word? Uh, so there was no, you know, there was really wasn't room to uh, screw up the arrest and let her get away. Let's say. I mean, one one, one of the interesting questions is, you know, was uh, Global Affairs Canada in the loop when the arrest was made? Because um, certainly um, the view of some of the former very senior officials in that department who we talked to was that. Um, they would have uh, smelled uh, a rat uh, a mile away here uh, in this case and would have strongly urged that, um, uh, you know, uh, Canada, uh, you know, not, not, not get involved in this. As, as you know, as, as Mike just said, the view of, of many was, um, uh, you know, botch it, uh, say, you know, the, the message arrived late. Uh, she's already on the plane to, to Mexico. So I think, you know, one of the interesting questions, and it's an unanswered question, is who actually knew what when this arrest take place, arrest uh, took place, and, and was, you know, PMO uh, and the Prime Minister himself uh, uh, aware of this and, and the consequences that would, uh, that would uh, you know, clearly come from it uh, when, uh, uh, when they uh, detained her in Vancouver Airport and, and you know, uh, We'll, we won't see those files for a while yet. Well, I mean, what we do know right now, though, is that um, the RCMP knew, uh, intelligence services knew, their American counterparts knew, the border Canadian border services were really aware. They, they came up to speed really quick on who this person was and how important she was and who her father was, the founder of, of, of you know, this company, um, you know, tech royalty in China, basically business royalty. Um, and it also, but it raises the question that, uh, I mean, I think we did find out later and it was made public probably at a press conference that, the, you know, the prime minister's office did in fact know or was tipped off. But as we've seen time and time again, and just lately with all kinds of other events is, uh, you know, the whiff of a, of a political leader uh, giving advice to a law enforcement agency and how to do their job. We know how, we know that doesn't go back. That doesn't play well either. So, exactly. no. uh, so it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, and, uh, and whatever does happen, if that happens, then it can, you can make the argument that that totally plays into the, to the intent of, of the Chinese to disrupt our democracy. Okay. Look, they, they can say, look, they, they broke their own rules. They, they played fast well, and loose and all of that. So, you know, so, so it's, 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 it, it was a tough, it was a paradigm. <laughs> One of the claims from China as uh, the Trudeau government was defending, um, arresting Men Wanzhou was that, uh, well, you know, you guys don't always follow the rule of law because this happened just before uh, SNC-Lavalin broke wide right. open and they kept throwing SNC in the, face of the Canadian government saying, well, you follow the rule of law when it's suits you, but right. you don't, you didn't in this case. Well, well I, I, think, I, I, Brian, just, just, you know, the, the other dimension to this is, you know, was there white house intervention with the justice department in going after Meng Wanzhou? Because if you look at other, you know, violations of U S sanctions cases, which was, you know, the basis for the arrest and, um, uh, you know, the, the accusation uh, uh, against Meng Wanzhou was that she had lied in a presentation she gave to the Hong Kong Shanghai Banking Corporation about Huawei's relationship with its um, uh, Iran-based uh, subsidiary uh, Skycom. 
um, you know, it was all pretty tenuous actually. Um, uh, and you know, the, the offending slide was one slide, uh, that, um, uh, didn't have that, uh, information on it, but, but the real issue is why did they go after her and not the company? Because normally you go after the company, you negotiate then, uh, you know, deferred prosecution agreement, et cetera, et cetera. And, and my suspicion, um, uh, is that, um, you know, the Trump administration uh, had no uh, compunction about inter interfering with uh, the work of the Justice Department. And, you know, this may well have been a case where uh, uh, officials in the White House uh, on the National Security Council said, you know, let's go after Meng uh, herself, not just the company. Hey, I, and I want to ask you about Trump in a moment, but um, I think think it was you, Fenn, and so I'll start with you, that you mentioned, um, one of you mentioned, John Manley earlier. And, and, and Manley had, did make those comments, oh, you know, could have just botched it and let her get mm -hmm. on the plane. But there were others that jumped out and, and immediately said, we should cut a deal with China. Yeah. Many of them, prominent Canadians, uh, conservatives and liberals, uh, former ministers, former prime minister, Jean Chrétien, I believe was one of them. Were you surprised at, at how many prominent Canadians were willing to step up and say, yeah, forget about our treaty with our American friends, just cut a deal, let her go. So there, there, there are two dimensions there. One is, you know, the sort of views of Manly, Chrétien, uh, others, um, um, you know, who had, uh, had extensive, certainly on, in, in the Chrétien era. I mean, that was, uh, you know, the era of trade, uh, uh, missions, Team Canada missions to China. Um, uh, you know, the, the corporate sector um, did not want uh, to see a disruption in relations with China. They wanted to uh, expand business opportunities in China. So, you know, I'm to be honest, I, I wasn't surprised at uh, uh, the views of those who said, uh, you know, let's, let's cut a deal. There was a letter that um, was sent to the prime minister's office and full disclosure, uh, I, I signed that letter uh, and that was in 2020. And um, that, was, that was really motivated uh, by, by two things. One was um, uh, COVID had struck, um, people were dying. Uh, there was real concern that these two guys um, were you know, at great risk. Uh, and this is before we had vaccines, you know, we're talking 2020 um, in, in the full throes of, uh, of COVID. Um, secondly, um, those who looked carefully, in, including, you know, some of Canada's most uh, distinguished uh, extradition experts um, who said, you know, the, the rule of law here, um, uh, you know, there's, there's sort of a fork in the road here. And, and given the highly political nature of this case, um, there's nothing to stop Canada from uh, cutting, cutting a deal with the Chinese. Uh, that was, um, that was uh, uh, I think, uh, um, you know, part, part of the motivation here. Uh, and also recognition that, you know, the Trump administration was cutting deals, to be honest, left, right, and center to uh, get Americans out of Iranian jails, out of, you know, uh, uh, Syrian jails, uh, uh, out of, uh, you know, uh, uh, all sorts of other uh, places where they'd run into, 
into uh, into trouble. And and so, you know, the sense was, you know, given given the the personal risk these two guys were at and um, and, um, uh, you know, they were now, um, you know, they'd also been formally charged. Um, Schellenberg, who was a a Canadian, uh, correct me, Michael, but. He was a Canadian who'd been detained in China and was executed. So I think there was no, no. He wasn't. Ex- he was. He was. He was convicted of drug dealing, uh, drug, dr- dr- yeah. dr- drug trafficking. Yeah. He got a he got a, a life sentence. A life sentence. Exactly. And then and then and then the life sentence was um, um, it increased to a death sentence. But he was never he was never actually executed. But it was yeah. all part of the pressure play along with saying you know. So there was yes. there, yeah. there was real there was real concern there that you know they they their lives were were at risk and um you know canadian governments in the past had had cut deals with uh, very unsavory characters when bob fowler uh, a very mm-hmm. official uh, uh was uh, kidnapped uh, by uh, al-qaeda in the maghreb uh, um you know we 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 actually paid some serious money there to uh, you know to to release him so negotiating hostage uh uh, uh, treaty, uh, you know, uh, ne- negotiating to, you know, to get hostages released is, is, um, is, uh, you know, well-established practice, including by the government of Canada. Yeah. An unsavory business, but one that does happen. We yeah. need to take a, a quick break. And when we come back, I do, I do want to ask you about Trump's double dealing and, and issues like that. And, and also, um, you know, comparisons to, to how, Michael Kovrig, Michael Spavor were treated compared to Menwazo living it up in what was it West Vancouver? We'll we'll talk about that when we come back. Was Donald Trump trying to do a, a double deal when it came to the two Michaels? That's something that uh, is put forward in the new book, The Two Michaels, by Mike Blanchfield and Fen Osler Hampson. And so, um, Mike, I, I guess I'll I'll start with you and and then hear from Fen. Uh, obviously. Trump was someone who, you know, he, I, I don't have that page open, but you, you quote him right in the book about, yeah, we'll talk about that. We, we'll cut a deal. He, yeah. he was freely talking about cutting deals. And in the end, it, it was an American deal that, that got them out. But w- yeah, was right. he playing a game with the lives of two Canadians? Um, he clearly saw a link between people in prison and how to cut a trade deal. And this was sort of a... a a bombshell he dropped during an interview with the Reuters news agency early on that, uh, you know, he wasn't above doing this. Um, um, and I was in the white house. I was, at, I was in the oval office when um, he met Justin Trudeau in 2019, a year later. And it was one of those classic Trump photo ops, which turned into a 20 minute press conference, which most of it was Canadian reporters shouting at Trump uh, and of him taking the bait and answering, what are you going to help these guys? What are you going to do? And he, the press conference ended with him basically suggesting hinting more or less saying yeah yeah i'll be talking to xi jinping at the g20 summit uh, next month and uh, i'll bring i'll see what i can do sort of a typical kind of trump like uh, yeah i'll uh, talk about your deal there and it was never really clear what he did if anything um and uh uh and it just seemed like they were sort of collateral damage in terms of his you know ongoing trade wars with china and trying to gain competitive advantage you know for american business and manufacturers I mean, but when you fast forward to sort of the, when after he's out of power and Biden is in power, I mean, it took the Biden administration about nine months to review the case. They 
Joe Biden did a, an appearance with Trudeau in, uh, in Ottawa virtually, their first summit during COVID, right after he was inaugurated in early 2021, and, and signaled that he didn't like this, he was going to take a look at it. Um, <clears throat> and again, what what got them out of Dodge, <laughs> literally, was a deal, but it had to be brokered by the Americans. And it was Biden himself using leverage and capital with Xi Jinping directly um, to, um, to basically make the argument that you need to get rid of this irritant. Um, and again, Biden didn't want to be seen to be messing with his Justice Department and how it was investigating things. So Dominic Barton, the Canadian ambassador to China, who's a former you know, captain of industry, got involved. They went to the United States. They helped educate the Huawei people about, hey, maybe you could make a deal here and take some kind of business penalty and the case could be reconfigured. And everyone saves face. And what it was was an elaborate dance to engineer prisoner swap with everyone trying to save face. And that included the Canadians saying, well, you know what? We followed the rule of law. We didn't cave. We didn't, you know, get the minister to intervene under a special clause in our extradition law that the Chinese knew full well existed because they did their homework. Um, and, um, and, you know, so when we saw the chain of events play out, it was American prosecutors go to court and, um, Somewhere in New York, greater New York City, they withdraw the charges provisionally, uh, reinstate, uh, you know, this, this sort of DPA style prosecution against uh, the company. And then Canada, you know, the Canadian prosecutors uh, or the American, the Canadian prosecutors on behalf of the Americans making the, with the extradition request stand up in a Vancouver courtroom a few hours later. And they're, they're dropping the case. Everybody goes free. There's a, there's a jet with its engines warming on the tarmac of a private hangar in Vancouver and off goes Meng. And meanwhile, behind the scenes, the, you know, the two Michaels are rustled out of their, their, their cells, they're brought together and they're put on an aircraft and, uh, and literally it ended with a deal. And to, to pivot it back to Trump, Trump didn't make the deal. He didn't seem willing to make a deal. He, you know, Trump, the deal maker. Well, you know what, there was no deal to be had with Canada. He's a, we, we know he's at the very least he's, put it mildly, he's transactional. And looking back on it today, there was really nothing in it for him. You know, why should I do a, a favor for my friend or an ally? Well, in the end, it was Biden who did that. And then we saw sort of it come full circle just recently when there's Biden back in, in Parliament. It's a real visit. It's not virtual. And suddenly there are the two Michaels. And it was, uh, it kind of, uh, you know, Biden was the guy who basically put the elbow grease into this to get it done in the end. Uh, to help out Canada, to do us a favor, it, it, to get a well, deal for us. Yeah, no, I think I, I think it wasn't just to help Canada. Um, uh, it, it's it's pretty clear that um, because uh, Xi Jinping had been embarrassed on the world stage uh, with the arrest, um, that um, the Chinese made it very clear to the Americans this issue had to be resolved if the Biden administration was going to turn the page the Trump page on relations with China. Um, I, I know that sounds funny to be talking about or odd to be talking about that now, but you know, Biden made it clear he wanted to have uh, uh, a much more um, uh, working uh, uh, professional relationship with uh, you know with uh, with the Chinese. Um, uh, of course, that that hasn't happened, but uh, he wanted to recalibrate it. Um, this issue uh, had to be resolved uh, uh, from a Chinese standpoint uh, as well. 
the second point uh, I would make there is that um, remember that um, the Chinese were going to be hosting the uh, the uh, Winter Olympics uh, at the end of twenty twenty one, you know, which had been uh, uh, delayed uh, because of uh, COVID. Um, this case was kind of hanging like an albatross. I mean, it had, uh, you know, gathered uh, enormous international attention, uh, partly through, you know, or largely because of the efforts of uh, our own government to, uh, you know, bring it to the attention of our allies and others saying, you know, this can happen to to your people too. Um, and, um, so, so uh, uh, you know, the issue really had to be had to be dealt with, um, and and you know, it 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 came up in uh, um, negotiations that uh, Deputy Secretary Sherman had with the Chinese uh, at the end of July twenty one. It was the subject of a phone call uh, between the White House, uh, um, uh, you know, President Biden, Xi Jinping, in uh, in September. Uh, I mean, Mike's absolutely right that um, that um, you know uh, uh, Biden um, you know wanted to to do something for Trudeau here, um, but uh, but it was also in the American interest to uh, to resolve the case. I think you want to do something for Canada. I mean, look at the situation of the Americans right now. I mean, they're the world is fracturing all around them, right? You've got uh, China and Russia, you know circling the wagons on Ukraine. You've got uh, major parts of the, uh, you know, of, of the world who are not on side with, um, you know, Canada and its NATO allies and some Asian allies against Russia. Uh, the Americans don't have the power base they once had. And it's been made very clear to me in conversations I've had with, with senior Americans that um, actually as little as we are and how insignificant we see, see each other, like every, every bit of help helps. Uh, you know, if we send a few extra tanks or, you know, buckets of ammunition to Ukraine, the Americans appreciate that because uh, we're part of a team that is on their side helping. Um, and it also, and Biden has said this repeatedly, um, and uh, it bears repeat, uh, I think it's important in this context. Uh, the Americans are just relieved that they've got us on their border because they've got Mexico on the other border with a whole host of immigration and political issues to deal with there. And immigration, you know, it's an it's a gateway from you know massive you know mass migration through you know the Western Hemisphere and Latin America into the United States and sometimes up into Canada. Uh, so it's a very legitimate uh, feeling that the Americans have these days. That yes, they they always take us for granted, and you know we're barely acknowledged in Washington. We matter more now than we ever did because we're part of a. Uh, dwindling group of countries that really is in their their power sphere, and uh, as we know, everything is so fractured, uncertain right now with this new war. Um, and we see a new detainee, American detainee, you know, for the Wall Street Journal right now in mm-hmm. in Moscow as well. So it's uh, it's all about interest, as and as Fen points out, yeah, the Chinese had a, a you know a great interest in getting this irritant out of the way. They were going to host the world at the Olympics. It was all about saving face and putting on a, a good show. So you know, after a certain point. Yes, uh, Xi Jinping was disrespected, uh, you know, when this all happened and, and uh, his minions ran around figuring out a way to, to do something. But in the end, it became an irritant. And I'm sure the thought in Beijing, they, they came around to the argument, they came around to the point of view, they had to be persuaded heavily that this is just a great big pain and an irritant. You got to get rid, we got to figure out a way to get rid of these, you know, get these guys out of here and hopefully never hear from them again. 
before I ask about going forward and, you know, the, the efforts by the Canadian government on extrajudicial rendition and such, uh, can either of you settle for me this idea? Start with you, Fen, and then from Mike. Um, did the Trudeau government play a big role in brokering this release, or was it all the Americans? I've heard from folks in Ottawa, oh, no, very much a big role. Heard from people in Washington. No, no role at all. It, it was a decision to to move forward with deferred prosecution. Um, is either one true, or is it a case of the truth is somewhere in the middle? Well, um, uh, we 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 did talk uh, 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 both on the record and off the record uh, with senior uh, officials in the administration, and um, uh, uh, it's clear that. Um, our ambassador uh, to uh, to Washington, um, uh, Ambassador uh, um, Hillman, Hillman, played uh, uh, a, a really important role in in you know keeping keeping the is issue alive. Um, there were uh, uh, a number of high level meetings with White House officials that involved uh, uh, Ambassador Hillman and um, and also uh, Dominique Barton. Um, and, and so, you know, getting it on the radar, uh, particularly with the new administration was important. Uh, the second point I would make is that, um, you know, even though he's come in for a lot of criticism, um, in many ways, the, the, uh, unsung hero in this story is Dominique Barton. And he played, uh, an important role and, and Mike touched on this, but, uh, I think, you know, we might want to underline it um, in really helping uh, the Chinese, helping Huawei, which was not getting, by the way, the best legal advice and team in the United States because nobody wanted to touch them with a 10-foot pole, um, uh, you know, given, given the troubles that they had uh, run into uh, with uh, uh, successive uh, administrations in Washington um, in, in, get, in, in helping them understand the game, uh, the legal game of deferred prosecution agreements. And that, that um, you know, this was sort of standard practice. Um, you know, you admit uh, uh, your culpability in an annex to an agreement, uh, uh, you know, which is kind of, you know, ultimately what, what happened there. But but really sort of, you know, pushing them along to say, you know, uh, there is a deal to be made here. And, um, and once you had a new sort of team in the Justice Department uh, with, uh, with the Biden administration uh, that, you know, was looking at this case, um, they, they uh, you know, deferred prosecution discussions had taken place under Trump but went nowhere. Uh, as Mike mentioned, but, you know, they got traction under Biden because, you know, once, um, he, you know, his officials started looking at the case here, they, you know, they kind of came to the conclusion, we might, we might actually lose this one in court. So, um, so I think, you know, there, there was a, a greater appetite to, uh, to come to an agreement here, but, but, you know, we, we, um, you know, our diplomats uh, did did play an important role. Um, I think, uh, and Mike can talk about this because um, 
you know, he was uh, uh, tracking Philippe Champagne, but um, the um, the uh, um, uh, uh, agreement uh, or, or declaration on arbitrary detention, which um, Canadian officials got a whole bunch of countries to sign up to, really, you know, put the Chinese in the spotlight on this one. And, yeah. and so maybe, Mike, I can jump in and, and just do a slight redirect on that, because yeah. uh, with China, that sort of thing can work. And there was an attempt to have a, an international conference last week. It's since been put off. But I don't see that embarrassing uh, someone like Putin when we're dealing with Evan uh, Gershkovich of the Wall Street Journal. So was that a successful play by Canada and, and our allies in, in saying we're against this uh, extrajudicial uh, detention? It, but yeah, yeah, I think will, we have, will it have limited appeal? Yeah, well, I think, I think the, way, I mean, the way it works is you start with um, an aspiration and you get a bunch of people to agree on an idea. So, you know, um, you know to use another example, a long time ago, uh, eventually people came around to the idea that smoking is bad for you. Um, and you shouldn't smoke, you'll probably die, and it'll kill you. Then a secondhand smoke will kill people around you. And then eventually regulation and binding, you know, mechanisms came into place. And now we have warning labels and fewer people smoke. And it was, it was that way with landmines. Don't use landmines. They're really miserable weapons and you blow up innocent kids and look at the horrible pictures, you know? So I think it's starting that way with this. You don't take innocent people hostages from another country to, for a political gain and lock them up as hostages to negotiate which is what we're seeing with the Wall Street Journal, um, you know, reporter who, Brian, frankly, is a member of our tribe, right? You yeah, know, yeah, I'm sure we don't, I don't, I don't, I don't no. like seeing that any more than you do, right? No. So, but here we, here we go again. But I think what the, the process of doing that and, and to talk about Francois-Philippe Champagne for a moment, because I covered him while he was doing it and spoke to him about it in quite a bit of detail. I mean, he was basically hell-bent on doing whatever he could to embarrass the Chinese and, not embarrass the Chinese, but pressure them, but to bring other players to the table. Uh, and I think it was useful for Biden and the Americans and the Justice Department when they could look and say, okay, well, Canada's got, you know, eventually it was 70, 70 countries saying this is bad. This is, you know, smoking is bad for you. It kills you. This is really bad behavior. You don't take other people, citizens hostage to score, win political battles um it it gave an impetus like a moral impetus to the americans who were the practical you know they they had they had, they had to execute this practically they had to decide it was their case they had to decide how they were going to reconfigure it and do the deal that they did by you know withdrawing the charge specifically against the person focusing on the company they had a lot of canadian help and the, i think the canadians did everything that they could have done politically at the diplomatic level at the political level uh, they built this coalition that may or may not, you know, make, I don't know what kind of difference it might make with Russia and this, and this, and, uh, and I mean, the, the, but, but, but so we'll see, so we'll see what happens. Um, yeah. But I think it really, uh, I mean, it was, uh, it was kind of, uh, it, it was the assist, you know, I mean, they, they, they put the ball in play and the Americans scored the touchdown. I mean, that, that's, I, I hate to dumb it down that way, but I think that's basically how it all came to pass. Yeah. And, Ch and China's not Russia. I mean, China, it, you know, does a huge amount of business with the rest of the world. And, um, and, uh, you know, there were, there were lots of people doing business in China who, you know, were coming to the conclusion, gee, this could happen to us. Um, you know, Russia has very certainly now very limited, um, 
economic ties with uh, certainly the Western world. And so that gives fewer points of leverage, uh, you know, to come back to your question. Um, And, and, you know, for the Chinese, saving face is very important part of, uh, or maintaining face, keeping face is an important part of their culture. Uh, I don't think Putin gives two figs about how he's viewed internationally. So, I, I really don't either. Gents, uh, so many more questions, most of which are answered in the book, but it's been a fantastic di- uh, discussion today. So I want to thank you for your time and encourage everyone to uh, to pick up The Two Michaels by Mike Blanchfield, Fenn Osler, Hampson. It's by Sutherland House Books. And you can find it anywhere books are sold. Thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, All Brian. Right. Full Comment is a post-media podcast. My name's Brian Lilly, your host. This episode was produced by Andre Prue. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Kevin Libin is the executive producer. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, etc. Uh, give us a rating, leave a review, tell your friends about us, and thanks for listening.